get to it. Uh, so we're going to start a new series this morning, uh, hence the lovely picture of a couch chair, Spiritual Warfare. And I was going through several um, pictures, several ideas of, I thought, you know, at first it wasn't going to be a series, it was just going to be a one-shot message. Um, and what I'm going to share this morning is fresh for me. In fact, I don't like to share it this fresh. Sometimes I like to sit on things for a while, meditate, and find more, and let the Lord add to it. But as I was preparing for this morning, in fact, I'll tell you, um, the message this morning was supposed to be a spiritual warfare, the law of spoils. Uh, did you know that there is a rule for everything that happens? It's like, for example, the law of gravity. If you jump up, you will inevitably come back down. That is the law of gravity. There's also a law of war. The winner always walks away with spoils. And so that was going to be my message this morning. But as I continue to let the Lord kind of uh, 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 lead me in my studying and my, pre my preparation, he began to open my eyes to some new things. And so I wanted to sit on it and meditate on it for a while. But in the process, I felt the Lord say, no, share this. And so um, I said, well, this is way too much. And I, again, I felt the Lord say, you don't have to share it on one day. <laughs> so I have a lot to share, but I'm not going to try to get it all out this morning. Uh, wherever we stop, we will pick up next week. But suffice to say, I am excited. I'm very excited because this is fresh for me. And I believe it's going to bless you. And one of the things I'm going to share this morning when we talk about spiritual warfare, I actually took the point off another pastor. Um, he wrote a book called Spiritual Warfare. And on the picture of the book, uh, it's a picture of somebody relaxed, reclining in a chair on a beach. Now, that's not the image of spiritual warfare most people associate. Uh, that's not the picture most people would associate with the idea of spiritual warfare. But suffice to say this, spiritual warfare means that you are more than a conqueror. Now, if you fight a battle and you win, you are a conqueror, but you are not more because you fought. More than a conqueror means David goes and fights Goliath you sit back and let him win. His victory becomes your victory. Now you are more than a conqueror. Are you with me? So I, I really wrestled for a while. It was about 30, 40 minutes. I thought, you know, it's 1 o'clock in the morning, Matthew. You need to finish this. Uh, <laughs> and I was just looking for a picture. And finally, I came across this awesome picture of a couch. Not even a couch, a, a, a comf whatever you want to call this chair. And so I thought, man, this is awesome. And I actually found a picture, and this is none of the message. I found a picture of a coffee shop that said relax on the window. And so I put relax and I put spiritual warfare underneath, but I like the couch better. The couch is more simple and it says, hey, relax, spiritual warfare. So are you ready to learn about spiritual warfare? And I'm going to share, like I said, man, I have fresh things that I have never seen before that the Lord shared with me personally. So I'm excited. Here we go. He's working on the names. When we get the names, we'll do the drawing at the end of the service. But spiritual warfare, here we go. If you have your Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And my goal for you this morning is this. At the end of the service, my goal is that we can uncover one of the buttons that the enemy pushes. All right? When it comes to spiritual warfare, let me say it like this. It's not something that we think about all the time. It's not something that's always on the forefront of our mind. But... Spiritual warfare for us is a posture, okay? It's a posture. And I think the more we are established in that posture, we'll not only win the battle more than we fight and more than we lose, right? We'll not only win, but we'll find that that posture sets us up for so much more down the road. So anyways, spiritual warfare. I hate when someone knows my buttons and they push it, and it takes me somewhere. And I have found that no one knows your buttons more than family, in fact, my brother uh, can attest to that. Uh, he and I can have a small disagreement. And then he says that one thing that went from zero to 100. 
and now I'm there. <laughs> now, let me say this. As we get older, as we've gotten older, okay, we've both matured and we both realize, hey, that doesn't have to be a button anymore. By the grace of God, I don't have to have buttons and neither do you have to have buttons. But Satan, let me say this. He's not new to this. I'm only 30 years old. Thank you for not saying, whoa, you know, that's right. I'm only 30 years old. He's been doing this way longer than 30 years. Okay. But he knows my buttons. He knows. He, all right. Let me say this. He sees our potential long before we see it. Long before we make the decision to follow Christ. Let me say this. He saw that God was trying to do something in you through you, that God was setting you up. So the moment he saw God was setting you up, he said, hey, I need to come up with a plan to mess this up. Are you with me? Now, how do we know this is true? You can't just make something up and bring it into church and share it. Did you know that when Moses was born, the people, the Bible says, they cried out to God. God, they didn't cry out to God. The Bible says that they cried out because they were being oppressed. And God heard their crying out and God sent a deliverer. Are you with me? So when the deliverer was sent, Satan organized, hey, guess what? Let's kill every boy from the age of two and under. Because if God wants to send a savior, if he wants to send a savior, he might be sending his son. Kill every boy the age of two and under. In fact, kill the boys as they're born. Are you with me? Now we know that God orchestrated Moses' birth. And God ordained that Moses should make it through anyways. But the point is, Satan saw what was going on. The people did not. But Satan saw that God was moving. When Jesus was born, the wise men came to Herod and they said, the king has been born. We saw his star. And Herod said, what? And Satan said, what? <laughs> and so Satan said, hey, kill every boy two and under. Why? Because no one else saw it. No one else saw it. But God was moving. And let me say this. Many times for you, God has been setting you up. God has been ordaining things for you. He's been setting you up for success. I'm telling you five years from now, you will not be doing what you're doing today. God is setting you up. All right. He's setting you up. But in the process, Satan sees what God is doing many times before we do. So he says, hey, I want to try to mess this up because I can't let you just move on through life and progress. If you continue to progress, you are spelling the downfall for everything that Satan wants to do. Thank you again for that thunderous amen. So spiritual warfare is not us always trying to be on the forefront. What is Satan doing? Spiritual warfare is more of a posture. And when we find that posture, and we have found it, but as we continue to be established in that posture, listen, we will find ourselves being set up for so much more. So this morning, we are going to remove the buttons. Going back to that. We're going to remove the buttons. Every time he pushes a button, you're not going to respond anymore. And listen, it's not going to be your willpower. In fact, this, I told myself, don't have a long intro. Just get to the message, Matthew, but get to the message. But let me say this, all right? Once you remove the buttons, what you find is this. This is not willpower. If I tell you, listen, if you respond to this tomorrow, you will miss out on a blessing. When that incident comes tomorrow, you'll remind yourself, don't respond for the blessing. But if you don't know what the reason is, when the incident comes, you will respond. So my goal to this morning is this. Give you the reason not to respond so that we can remove the button altogether. And I'm excited. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's get to the message. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we've touched on this very many times. But again, let's make sure we're all on the same page. Okay? Spiritual warfare. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now, before we move on, so we're all on the same page. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Okay? 
That means everything that you see physically has nothing to do with what you're seeing spiritually. Are you with me? Do not try to bring physical things into a spiritual realm. You are going to fight a spiritual battle on a spiritual place. Are you with me? Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down, and I put it in gold, casting down what? Arguments. Arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the what? Knowledge. Knowledge of God. Bringing every, one more time, thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, when it comes to spiritual warfare, knowing where the battlefield is half the victory. The problem is most people don't know that. They think spiritual warfare is down the street. Spiritual warfare is at work. Spiritual warfare is at home. You can wage the war wherever you want. Thank you for that thunderous amen. You can wage the war wherever you want. Okay? Wherever you are, you can wage warfare. Because spiritual warfare is not attached to a geographical location. It is attached to what? Arguments, knowledge, thoughts. Where do your thoughts take place? Where do your arguments process? Knowledge. Mind. Where does spiritual warfare take place? In the mind. Don't let anyone deceive us. All right? New Testament teaching is what? It takes place in the mind. Now, I know there's an Old Testament principle. Well, brother, they, they, they walked around one time every day. Old Testament was a shadow. New Testament, we have substance. Are you with me? You can walk around your problem by the grace of God. Continue walking. But let me say this. Old Testament was shadow. New Testament is substance. They had to literally walk around. We can relax. (laughs) All right. They had to walk. We get to relax. They had the shadow. We have the substance. Are you with me? So the battlefield is the mind. Are you still with me? And I love the New King James. I don't like the NIV for this. I love the New King James. Because notice, when it comes to arguments, spiritual warfare, what is, what is the devil trying to do? Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience, not to Christ, but to the obedience of Christ. The obedience of Christ. Where was Christ obedient? His entire life. But where is he the most obedient? At the cross for all of us. So every thought that the enemy brings is to get us to negate the truth that Christ was obedient. Not me. Christ was obedient. And so what the devil does is this. He'll come to us many times and say, if you are not obedient, how can you expect? If you have not, how can you? Are you with me? If you are not The only way he can win is if he takes our eyes off of Christ's obedience and puts it on our obedience. Now, please don't misunderstand. I know most of you know my heart. I'm not saying we can be disobedient and continue with life as if nothing ever happened. But suffice to say this, in the Old Testament, obedience was what you did. In the New, obedience is what you believe. All right? Now, when you believe the truth, the Apostle Paul said this, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ called to bring you to the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. What you are believing is now considered to be obedience. So when you believe the truth, now you're walking in obedience. Are you with me? And when you are obedient, God will always bless you. (laughs) Aren't you glad when you do the wrong things, but you believe the right things, God blesses you anyways. Are you with me? Now, When you believe the truth, and this is the safety net, when you believe the truth, you will walk according to the truth that you believe. Are you with me? 
That's why we don't have to tell you what to do and what not to do. We can just show you the truth. And when you believe the truth, the truth that you believe will set you free to do the right things. Well, what if I make a mistake? Hey, it's not what you do. It's what you believe. Eventually, your believing will overtake your wrongdoing and you'll find yourself doing the right things because you believe the right things. That's the root. Let's not worry about the fruit. Let's say, oh, that person came into church. They've been here for three months and they still haven't got it together. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> hey, you know, it took Abraham almost 40 years before he ever presented Isaac on the altar. Did you know that? It took him almost 40 years, 40 years for him to say, I will be 100% obedient to God. And 40 years of mixing obedience with disobedience. So, hey, let's not rush people. <laughs> let's not rush people, especially our children. Let's not rush it. Hey, let's just tell them the truth. And when we tell people the truth, let's let the Holy Spirit produce the obedience in them that he wants to produce. Are you with me? All right. So, again, spiritual warfare. Now, this is not the button that the Lord wanted me to uncover. Let's keep going. Though. We're all on the same page, right? Spiritual warfare takes place where? In the mind. So, again, it's not where you're at. It's how it's here in your mind. Let's keep going. Watch this. Matthew chapter four. Now let's look real quick. Matthew chapter four. Let's look at the first time Jesus had a spiritual warfare moment. Okay. Now keep in mind when you, when you have a spiritual warfare moment, I don't believe we're all on the same level as Jesus. I believe, um, and I say it carefully. I say it like this. When Jesus hit the planet earth, Satan began planning. I'm not going to trust this to someone else. <laughs> I'm going to handle him myself. <laughs> now, for all of us, let me say this. <laughs> there are different spiritual uh, uh, accountability, levels of accountability. All right. In the beginning, the enemy knows God wants to do something, so he sends someone out. But the more you believe the truth of the gospel, you move higher through ranks. All right. And so all of a sudden, the same attack that used to work isn't the same attacker, so to speak. So when Jesus shows up, Satan says, I'm not going to trust another demonic spirit. I'm coming myself. So when Jesus is tempted, let's look at how Jesus handled spiritual warfare. Are you with me? All right. Now, don't forget, giving you the backdrop real quick. Jesus has come to John the Baptist's cousin. And John says, hey, I'm not, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize. And Jesus said, no, so that all righteousness should be fulfilled. So he takes him into the Jordan River and Jesus goes down. John baptizes Jesus and he brings him out. And when he comes out, the Bible says the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Right. And all of a sudden, God shouted out from the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So now everyone knows Jesus is the one. This is God's beloved son. Are you with me? Now, I love I think it's in Luke's translation. It says. Uh, this is my beloved son. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's Luke or Matthew, one or the other. One says, this is my beloved son. The other says, you are my beloved son. Now, I love that the difference appears in the Gospels. Now, which one is correct? Both. Jesus heard, I am God's beloved son. Everyone else around him heard, this is God's beloved son. Are you with me? Internalize God's love for you. That is the beginning of every victory every victory. Don't let a problem move you from knowing that God loves you. If you let the devil rob you in a moment of God's love for you, you're setting yourself up for a very bumpy ride. Are you with me? So God starts off by saying, you are my beloved son. After he's baptized, the Bible says the spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days. For 40 days, he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. 
All right, why 40 days? Why 40? 40 is the number of a generation. The children of Israel walked around wondering for how many years? 40 years. One day for every year. They failed. But where they failed, he has come now to win. <laughs> Are you with me? So that in their failure and in your failure, now his victory can become yours. Are you with me? So now he's in the wilderness. Now let's watch this. The first temptation that the enemy brings, spiritual warfare. Watch this. Now when the tempter came to Jesus, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now let me ask you, is there a law that says thou shalt not turn stones to bread? There is not, in case you don't know, there is not a law that says thou shalt not command stones to become bread. Jesus is God. He could turn stones to bread. But what is the real problem with this phrase? The last thing Jesus heard God say was what? You are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. I love you. Satan says, if you are the son, not the beloved. Are you with me? So again, let me rob you of the consciousness that God loves you. If I can make you believe that God doesn't love you just in this moment, not even make you believe that he doesn't love you. If I can stop you from thinking about how God feels about you. Are you with me? Then I can already get you there. So watch this. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, when I was meditating on this, this is what one of the things, one of the, one of the things the Lord gave me that was fresh for me. Okay. Watch this. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That phrase, every word that proceeds, I put that proceeds in gold. In the Greek, the, the actual tense is a present participle. In fact, do I have it up here? I think I do. Present participle, that proceeds. Now, what is a present participle? Present tense means this, it's always present. Every word that God is saying right now, present tense. And a participle means as he continues to speak in the future. Now, why is that so important to the context? Satan said, turn stones to bread. Stones to bread. When you think of bread, think of nourishment. Think of food. Jesus, you haven't eaten in 40 days. You're hungry. So, hey, just turn stones to bread and be nourished. Now, it seems like a, a very harmless temptation because it seems that way. But what is he really saying? Let's, let's go deeper this morning, can we? What does stone represent in the Bible? The Ten Commandments, the law, they're written on two tablets of stone. Jesus could have turned stones to bread and moved on with life. The problem here is this. Stones represent law. Law is not what God is saying now. Law is what God said back then. We do not live, and I say this carefully, we will never find our nourishment from what God said 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. We must find our nourishment from what God is saying Right now. Right now. Are you with me? Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, just for the sake of art, it doesn't mean throw this away. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it means is this. What is God saying to me right now in this moment? Not what did God say to me five years ago? Now, if I'm holding on to a prophecy, that's different. I'm not saying that at all. But in the moment, this morning, what is God saying right now? Because my nourishment doesn't come from that. My nourishment comes from this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that is still, that is still proceeding from the mouth of God right now. Now watch this. What just came out of God's mouth before we saw this? You are my beloved son. My nourishment doesn't come from turning what God said into nourishment now. My nourishment will come from what God is saying right now. Well, I'm hungry. Yeah, but you know what? God just told me that he loves me. 
That will be my nourishment. Are you still with me? Man, when I saw that, I got excited. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, one more time. The first temptation was to rob Jesus of God's love for him. Are you with me? Watch this. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Now, I love this one because know what he does now? All right. You don't want to turn stones to bread. You don't want to go into that arena with me. Then let me quote scripture to you. O son of God. He shall give his angels charge over you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, he didn't misquote scripture. He quoted it. Now, listen, this should, this should put a holy reverential fear, not in you, but in anyone else who's listening to this message at some point. All right? Because Satan can quote scripture. And there's many churches, and I say this reverently, there are many churches he's still quoting scripture in. All right? So, what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Done. What's the commonality between both? The first one, Jesus says what? It is written. The second one, Jesus said to him again, verse 7, it is written again. I think if we're going to win spiritual warfare, we must know what is written. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean memorize the whole Bible, but I think we need to know what's written. Let's keep going. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, we've talked about this. So I don't want to get uh, I don't want to detour off. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, it doesn't say you shall worship the Lord your God. It says you shall fear the Lord your God. So Jesus translates the word fear into worship. In the Old Testament, we were afraid. Now Jesus is saying, no, I want you to worship God. Worship and fear, two different things. Fear, I'm terrified. Worship, there is no more fear. I come because I know that the one I'm worshiping loves me. All right? Are you still with me? But again, the commonality is what? For it is written. All right. I heard a great man of God say this once. He said, you know what? Next time you have a fear in your heart, next time something comes and you're unsure about how it will turn out, just say out loud, it is written and quote the verse that you can remember because the Holy Spirit will bring the verse back to your remembrance. All right. So when you're sick, just say this, it is written by his stripes. I was healed. Next time you look, at, uh, you look at what you have and you know that it's not enough for what you need, just say it is written. My God shall supply all my needs. Satan doesn't come to you and say, you don't have enough money because you'll probably turn around and say, who said that? <laughs> what does he do? He comes to you and he says this, I don't have enough money. And then you go, I don't have enough money. He comes to you and says, oh my gosh, I'm in so much pain. And you say, I am in so much pain, right? He doesn't come to you and say, oh my God, I'm hurting so bad. Cause you would turn around and say, who's saying that? He's not stupid. He's been doing this for a while, okay? So what does he do? He comes to you and he gives you a thought. He comes to you, he gives you a fear. He comes and he, he brings something that's in front of you and he escalates the issue, escalates the concern, elevates it, so to speak. And as he brings it up, if we're not careful, we own the problem because we hear the thought and we say, that's right. But instead, what does Jesus do? It is written. It is written. It is written. 
I don't care how bad this looks. It is written, my God shall supply all. It is written, by his stripes I was healed. Are you still with me? Can we take it one step further? I like this. I haven't even told any jokes yet. I have one. I have one. Christina says stop telling jokes. <laughs> All right. Can I show you the, uh, uh, let's go back. Let's go back. In fact, look at this real quick. Did you know, go to Genesis, if you don't mind. Can we turn to Genesis? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now the apostle Paul says something in Corinthians. He said, I pray that you would not be deceived as the serpent deceived Eve. Okay? As the serpent deceived Eve. I pray that you would not be deceived in the same manner. Now, this is where, uh, this was the one that was completely brand new. And I wanted to sit on this for a while, but I felt impressed from the Lord to share. So Genesis chapter 3. In fact, I'll go ahead and turn there. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2. Sorry, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to go to chapter 3 in just a second. But I want to show you these two verses real quick. Now, in the story, God has already created the garden. He's already created man. He puts man in the garden. And then he tells Adam these awesome words. Verse 16, it says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. Say freely. Freely, freely eat. You know what the word freely, another word for freely is? Graciously. You may graciously eat. Okay? Now, when God says freely, what he's saying is, hey, it comes free of cost. I've made all these things for you, but I won't put a price tag on it. You may freely eat. Are you with me? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the Hebrew, dying, you shall die. Doesn't mean you'll die right now, but it means death will begin its process on you. Are you with me? I saw when Adam ate, he didn't die that same day. All right. In dying, you shall die. Now watch this. One more time. He said, what? You may freely eat. Now, what is God's adjective that he adds to what he gives us? When God gives you something, he never gives you in part. He never gives you in, in, in a small amount. He always says what? Freely, graciously. Aren't you glad you serve a God who doesn't know enough? Aren't you glad you have a heavenly father that when he gives to you, he always says, hey, it's all freely yours. It's all graciously yours. Now, what does that mean about him? What does it say about him? It tells me he is generous. It tells me he is generous. He doesn't hold back. When God gives to you, he doesn't hold back. When you ask God for healing in one spot, of, one part of your body, let me say this. I believe God is flooding your entire body with healing. Are you with me? God doesn't want to just heal one part. He wants to heal you entirely. God doesn't want to just bless you in one part of your life. He wants to bless you entirely. So when it comes to God giving, he always gives it freely. He always gives it graciously. But how does the devil want us to interpret that? Now, again, this is where we will uncover the button. Now, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. I should have go there, and I apologize. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Now let's, let's just, let's look at this verse by verse, shall we? Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Let me ask you, did God say that? Did God say that? What did God say? Let's back up. Of every tree of the garden you may what? Eat? Freely eat. 
When God conveys something to you, that's why when you come to church, when people say things like, oh man, it's all prosperity gospel. It's all a feel good gospel, man. They just want you to feel good and come to church. I, I don't want to go to churches where the pastor just wants to feel good. I only want to talk about the good things of God. Let me say this. All right. <laughs> I can say this. I'm the pastor of the church. Let me say this. All right. You may freely eat. <laughs> freely eat. Now, there is one tree I'm going to ask you to stay away from. But freely eat. <laughs> Just leave one tree alone. Now, we know that this is a law, all right? You shall not eat. Sounds very similar to you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. We know that this is a law. In fact, the tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Romans chapter 5, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, hey, look, this tree is a type and shadow of something, the law. And in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, hey, the sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is the law. So let me say this. The moment God said, you shall not eat, they were doomed. The temptation was already there. All right. But God had a plan. God wasn't taken by surprise. Now, the, the reason why I'm saying this is this. Listen, God doesn't want you to think he's stingy. He wants you to come and see he is gracious. He is generous. He doesn't want to hold anything back from you. He wants to give it to you. I mean, come on, the theme for this year is you are under an open heaven. Open heaven. It's yours. It's yours. And Jesus, like we said earlier this year, Jesus is the ladder. If there's any other foundation, you're in trouble. But he is the ladder. He is the foundation. The cross is the reason why it's open to you. It's all yours. So, hey, stop thinking God is stingy. Stop running from people who say God wants to give you more because he does. I'd hate to listen to someone who says, God's trying to get it back from you. He wants it back. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. So did God say you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. But notice what he did. And this is where I got excited. Notice what he did. Has God said you shall not eat of every tree? He's trying to rob her of something. The freely. He wants to rob her of the grace. Are you with me? Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. He's already won. Because you know what he did? He dropped the word freely. She dropped the word freely. You see that? If he can convince you that God is not gracious for a moment, just for a moment, he's already won. When I saw this, man, I'm telling you, spiritual warfare became so much more. I feel like the button has been exposed. I feel like the button has been exposed. He can't push it anymore and make me jump. He can't. You know why? Because what is he here to do? Make me believe that it's not gracious. Make me believe that it's not freely. If he can convince me for a moment that it's not freely, he's got me. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Let me say this. God put two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of life. I'm sorry, he put one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of life. And next to it, next to it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which tree is in the middle of the garden? The tree of life. Next to it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But because she has lost sight, of freely. What did she say? But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. You see that? Because he robbed her of the gracious side of what was going on, she immediately put her attention on the one she was not supposed to touch and made that the middle. She made that the center of her attention. 
And now all the men are paying for it. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. It was either that or tell my joke about cards dancing. So I won't tell you that one. (laughs) So one more time. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I told you from 2 Corinthians. Let me show you this real quick. I'm coming to something. I'm coming to something. I'm coming to 2 Samuel. So bear with me. Watch this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. Paul says this. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Now watch one more time. Satan's number one attack against Adam and Eve was to rob them of the idea that God was gracious to them. His attack was not Eve kill Adam. If she kills Adam, then there's no seed. If there's no seed, Jesus isn't born. God has to start over. Are you, under, are you with me? So instead of saying, Eve, kill Adam, what does he do? Hey, let me rob you of the graciousness. All right? And we know how the story ends. She takes from the wrong tree. We're in this mess. But watch this. Paul says, let me expose this for a moment. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. That is terrifying. But what did he just say? Watch this. I love this. Because I saw it in the New Living Translation, and my heart jumped. Watch this. Just as Eve was deceived, how does the enemy deceive people today? Let me say this. Where is spiritual warfare taking place more than most places, geographically speaking? In the church. In the church. Now, why is he attacking people in the church more, I believe, more here than he is in the club? If you're in the club, guess what? You're already there. He won. (laughs) But in the church, in the church, he has to try a little bit harder. Ah, are you with me? Let's try a little bit harder. Now, what does he do? Just as Eve was deceived, what did he do to Eve? He robbed her of freely. He robbed her of grace. Watch this. You happily put up. What happens when you are robbed of grace? You will happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. Even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach. Or a different kind of spirit than the one you received. Or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. Jesus. <laughs> Are you still with me? But look at verse 5. In fact, did I have verse 5 on here? Verse 5. Where is it? 2 Corinthians. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? 2 Corinthians. What is this? 2 Corinthians 11. Glad I brought my Bible today. Oh, nope. Didn't need it. Anyways, put that up there accidentally. Here we go. So it should have been 3 and 4. I apologize. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 and 4. A different gospel than the one you believe. Now look at this real quick. See the word deceived. I put it in bold. Let me show you what the word deceived means in the Greek. And I think it's going to expose something really cool here. Watch this. The word deceived. I'm not going to mess that word up. But (laughs) deceived literally means to be deceived thoroughly. It's not he just tricked her on the surface. No, the deception went very, very deep. And the helps word studies literally defines it as this. Describing someone taken in and enslaved by Satan. That was a very interesting way to define this. That deception of robbing her of the grace that God was presenting to her. Because he robbed her of that, what happened? He was able to enslave her. Are you with me? 
Now again, we are removing the buttons. We're exposing them and we're removing them by the grace of God. All right. Next time you see something and you realize for a moment you have stopped realizing how gracious God is to you. Hey, rejoice that you saw it. Because you know what? There are so many people who don't know it. They go through life going, God, how? God, why? God, when? And all the while, God is saying, hey, freely take, freely eat, freely, freely. It's yours. I'm gracious to you. I love you. You are my beloved, and in you I am well pleased. I mean, God is setting you up for success. Not only is he telling you these things, he's going ahead of you. He's already prepared the garden. It's all for you. All that God is doing, he's doing it because he loves you. Are you with me? But Satan, his only attack is to rob you of that consciousness. Now, think about this real quick and we'll move on. Think about this and I'll close. Why is this his attack? Why did he not just go slap Eve across the face? Why didn't he just take the fruit and shove it down her mouth? I mean, think about it. Why didn't he just come to Adam and just force him to eat it? Because he can't. Think about it. He can't. Satan has no power over you. He has no power over you. People in the world, different story. You, he has no power over you. He cannot force you to do something. He cannot force anything on you. Are you with me? Thank you for that thunder. Say amen. Satan has no power over you, over your children, over your life, over your church. Thank you, Jesus. He has no power over you. He can't touch you. (laughs) Thank you. He can't touch you. He can't. They, let me say this. Demons fear and tremble when you walk in the room because someone inside of you is greater than every one of them. So they mark you when you walk in the room. Even if you haven't seen them, they're noticing you. They notice you. There's a reason why sometimes you go places and have problems with people because they don't want you there. Are you with me? They can't hurt you. But how did he deceive Eve? He used her own power against herself. He used her own logic against herself. He robbed her of an idea and made her take the fruit herself. That's what the devil does. He can't force you to do anything. He just tries to trick you into doing the wrong things. In fact, the word deceive, one one definition said this. He deceived her. The word logic appears by using her logic and using her reasoning. Are you with me? Come on. He can't touch you. He can't touch you. That's why when we pray in the name of Jesus, we don't hope we get better. We know we'll get better. Are you with me? That's why when things happen around you, you know that God is working for you. Not you hope. You know he's working for you. Because Satan can't touch you. He cannot touch you. I love that thought because you know what? We have a church that meets between two other churches that we're not sure what they believe or how they believe. Let me tell you this. I don't care what they think they bring in here. (laughs) We bring the blood of Jesus and the grace of God every time we step in. When we take communion, we're declaring that Jesus died. And I'm telling you, demons in hell tremble in fear. We are on the west side of Charlotte for a reason. For a reason. And every time we hit a problem, every time we hit a bump in the road, we go, God, why are we not able to get in touch with these people for this? And all the, and all the things I never really tell people in church. But let me say this. There's a reason. Because they see what we bring every single week and they say, my God, we got to get them off the west side. Send them somewhere else. Because <laughs> they can't touch us. The devil cannot touch us. We are covered in the blood. We are in Christ, seated in heavenly places. That's who we are. And spiritual warfare is not a location. It's right here. But praise God, now that the button has been exposed, we are more than conquerors. 
Thank you, Jesus. Now, can I show you one more thing in close? Can I go? One more thing. Let's keep going. Watch this. Second Samuel chapter eight. Now watch this. <laughs> Let me show you what God has to say to David. Let me show you a man who made a mistake and took his eyes off how gracious God was to him. He made a mistake. I don't like closing on warnings. I've done it once before. I love closing on happy notes. But I want to close on a warning. But don't worry. No matter where you find yourself, no matter how many times you forget or how many times you slip up, you will always be more than conquerors. And listen, through him who loved you. Him who loved you. If it looks like you're losing the battle and you're here this morning and say, Matthew, I'm, I'm, I'm in the trenches. I may not have lost, but I'm in the trenches. Let me say this. You will be more than a conqueror through him who loves you. Even now in this moment, just say, Jesus, you love me. And this will be the beginning of coming out. And then when you come out, he'll sit you down and say, now let me finish the fight. Because for you to be more than a conqueror, it means I must fight the giants for you. Are you with me? Thank you, Jesus. Now, let me close with this. Let's look at the story of David real quick. I'm going to jump around in the verses because I don't want to read the whole passage. We've already uh, gone over time. But <laughs> I'm going to jump around on the verses, but stay with me. Are you with me? All right, let's close with this. 2 Samuel chapter 8. This isn't 2 Samuel chapter 8. Did I put the chapter up there? <laughs> it was a long night. <laughs> 2 Samuel, I'm not going to find it. This isn't even my Bible I'll study with. You can find it on your own. And everyone said, it's in there somewhere. I'm just, I'm just, I, I, I would normally never do that. I normally never do that. You know me. You know me. I'm a type of person where I'm glad you bring your Bibles so you can hold the speaker accountable. All right. I went to a service not long ago and they were making stuff up. And I said, I know that story. That's not in there. All right. So I, I'm glad you bring your Bibles so you can hold the speaker accountable. And everyone said, amen. amen. Hallelujah. Here we go. Second Samuel somewhere in second Samuel verse eight. There's a verse eight that says this. Now, now go and say to my servant, David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. It's in chapter seven. Here we go. Now, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Chapter 7. Now, real quick, David has already brought the house, he's already brought the Ark of the Covenant into Israel, into Jerusalem. And he's about to set up a house. He has all these plans. Man, I want to build a house for God. In fact, God says, hey, David, everyone else is living in houses except me. I'm still living in a tent. Okay? I'm tired of living in a tent. Put me in a house made of cedar. Okay? In the New King James. Give me a cedar house. So then he comes to David and he says these words. I'm going to read this one more time because I want you to see the grace that God has given David. Watch this. Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. Look, when no one else was watching you, I was training you. When no one else was looking at you, I was investing in you. Are you with me? Let me say this. People may not see you right now. They may never see you in this moment right now, sitting in a pew at 5415 Airport Drive at Jackson Park in a chapel somewhere. They may never see this moment. But let me tell you something. God is investing into you. 
God is investing into you. Now watch this. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies, not behind you, but before you. I let you see me destroy every single enemy. Watch this. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now put this part in gold because this is the part I want you to notice. I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. I haven't failed once. Not once. Every enemy that came up against you, I've destroyed them. Even when he ran from Saul, even when he ran from Saul, God let Saul run his own course. And by the grace of God, David let Saul run his own course. It looks like that's the position that God has anointed me for. That's the position he ordained me for. I'm supposed to be doing what he's doing. That's where God called me to be. And yet, David said, but I won't touch a hair on his head. When he cut his robe, he came back and said, my heart, I made a mistake. I should never have lifted my hand against him. Well, I'm anointed. You're right. But not yet. Not yet. All in his time. Now watch this. Let's skip down to verse 15. God says in between verse 9 and verse 15, he says this, you want to build a house for me, but I don't want you to do it. I want your son to be the one who does it. He says, but my favor will not be taken from him, the son that David will have. And his name is Solomon. But my favor will not be taken from him, your son, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in his vision. Now, I'm showing you this verse for a reason. I put this in gold again. And your throne will be secure for how long? Forever. Now, if God is speaking to you and telling you, hey, look, I've destroyed every enemy and your position is secure forever. Does that mean that you should be worried about the future? You have no reason to worry about the future. Why? Because God didn't say I destroyed some of your enemies. I'll take care of most of your problems. He said, I'll supply all. I will supply all. You will be secure forever. Forever. Your healing is not in part. Your healing will be forever. Are you with me? Forever. This is the freely we're talking about. This is the freely Satan wants to rob you of. This is the freely. Not some, not most, forever. Now let me close with this. When David got distracted, are you ready? Let's fast forward to chapter 24. Chapter 24. It says, so the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army, take a census of all the tribes of Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south so I may know how many people are there. Now on the surface it looks like, well, this is what kings do. If you ever have to go to battle, you want to know how many people are in your army, right? <laughs> but let me say something. It's deeper than this. It's deeper than just, I want to know how many. It's, I want to know how many, so next time I have a problem, I know what I bring to the table. And therein is the problem. Watch this. One more time. Take a census of all the tribes of Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, so I may know how many people there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God let you live to see a hundred times as many people as there are. But why, my Lord, the king, do you want to do this now? Let me say this. We need every, we, everybody needs somebody in their life. And I'm not talking about your spouse. Your spouse, yes. But listen, everybody needs someone in their life who loves you enough to tell you the truth. All right? Without freedom, without the fear of losing you as a friend. You need somebody in your life who can tell you the opposite of your best idea and not be afraid of losing your friendship. All right. David said, I have a great idea. Let's take a census of everybody in our army. And Joab comes in and says, but King, 
May God cause you to see a hundred times more than what we have now. But why in the world do you want to do this? This is a horrible idea. Now, I would never say that to a king, but you know what? We need someone in our lives who can speak to us and loves us enough to tell us the truth, to tell us the truth, even when it's not what we want to hear and not be afraid that they'll lose us. Are you with me? Watch this. But the king insisted that they take the census. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out to count the people of Israel. Now, when the king speaks, the Bible says, who can challenge the word of a king? Who can challenge the word of a king? Solomon wrote that, actually. Who can challenge the word of a king? Okay? Because where the word of the king is, there is power. He wrote that in Ecclesiastes. All right? Who can challenge the word of a king? So the king says, no, I want you to do it anyways. Joab says, fine. That's the king's wishes. We'll do it. But I tried to warn him. Now, let's fast forward in the story real quick. Pick up at verse 8. Having gone through the entire land for nine months and 20 days, they returned to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of people to the king. There were 800,000 capable warriors in Israel who could handle a sword and 500,000 in Judah. But after he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking the census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. Wow. Why did he sin? Because he took his eyes off of what God could have done and looked at what he could do. In the moment he believed, in the moment he believed, victory will come by what I can do. Next time I go to battle, what I have will tell me if I need to be afraid or if I can be confident. And God said, whoa, <laughs> no, 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 no. Your confidence was never supposed to be in what you had, but always in me. I can win a battle against a, so many. When Gideon stepped into battle, he had 300. And the Bible says there were so many they couldn't even number. God can take your five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000. Do not let your confidence be with what you have. Let your confidence be in him. Satan wants to rob you of what God has given you. He wants to rob you that the idea that God is being gracious to you. But don't be trapped. Let me close with this. Verse 18. That day, God, that day Gad came to David, the prophet. Gad came to David and said to him, go up and build an altar. Now, real quick, let me tell you real quick what happens between verse 10 and verse 18. He sins greatly against the Lord. All of a sudden, God sends out a judgment on them. They are under the law. Under the law, when you sin, punishment comes. So because he has sinned by looking at his number, God is so angry at this. God says, fine. Hey, there's an angel that will go out and a plague will fall on all of Israel. I'm skipping the details. Read it for yourself. David actually gets a choice, three choices. You can either run for your life for the next three or eight months, something like that. Run for your life. A plague can hit all the people or, and my mind escapes me the last one. David says, oh, that I would never fall into the hands of a man, but that I should always fall into the hands of God because his mercy endures forever. God says, fine, this is what I'll do. The plague will hit the people of Israel. They will pay for your mistakes. While they're paying for their mistakes, finally God sees what's going on. He says, enough. But in the process of saying enough, something happens first. And I'm going to close with this. Something happens first. Verse 18, it says, That day Gad, the prophet, came to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up to do what the Lord commanded him. When Aruna saw the king and his men coming toward him, he came and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord, the king, Aruna asked David. I'm sorry, Aruna asked. David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. 
Take it, my Lord, the king, and use it as you wish. Aruna said to David, here are the oxen, here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and you can use the threshing boards and ox yokes for wood to build a fire on the altar. I will give it all to you, your majesty, and you, I'm sorry, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. Now watch this. David says, I realize I made a mistake. I need to go and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. I need to offer a sacrifice so that the plague will stop, so that the people can live. And as he goes up, Aruna says, here, let me give you the field. Let me give you the oxen. But watch this. Let me close with this. But the king replied to Aruna, verse 24, no, I insist on buying it. For I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. Let me close with this. Where is it? Oh, that's verse 24. Verse 25. David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. This Wednesday night, we're going to pick up on our series on offerings. All right. Uh, he offered what? Burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer for the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Now watch this. Let me close with this. Why did David say, I won't just take it from you? It would be faster. It'd be easier. Thank you, Aruna. Thank you for the ox. Thank you for the field. Let's stop this plague. David said, I will never offer to the Lord something that did not first cost me. Why? Because if you ever come to God and you act like, hey, this didn't cost me anything, so I'm going to give it back. Wait a second. Jesus cost God everything. Jesus cost God everything. Jesus was not a half payment, a partial payment. It was not out of what God had. Jesus was all that God had. And God gave up all that he had for us. So when David realized he made a mistake, he said, I must respond back to God in the same manner. It cost him something, then it must cost me something. Now, what's the picture for all of us? Now, when we come to the house of God, listen, when we come to the house of God, now we say, Jesus, <laughs> it costs our heavenly father everything. So we bring back to him what it cost him. And let me say this this morning, whatever you're going through, whatever you're looking at, whatever you're facing this morning, Jesus is all you bring back to the Father. Jesus is all you bring back. You say, Heavenly Father, I don't know how to do it. I don't know what to do, but it's not my obedience. It's Christ's obedience. I take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This sickness, let me say this, it comes back to the obedience of Christ. By his stripes, I am healed. This problem in front of me comes back to the obedience of Christ. And let me say, the moment you do that, it stops. The plague will stop. And we have won the war. <laughs> Amen? Wow. I went way over time. <laughs> but I have so much more to share, and we will share more next week. Like I said, this was supposed to be a one-shot series, and you know what?